Happy New Year, and welcome to the January 2024 edition of the 21cc podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. CIOB's big three priorities in the coming years are quality and safety, sustainability and skills. This episode weaves among them like a pack of excited Dalmatians flitting about the wheels of a splendorous carriage pulling into Buckingham Palace. You can see I'm a bit hyper after the Christmas break. This month, we're going to Florida, where a Lego-style building system has finally made its debut, with apartment blocks impervious to floods, hurricanes and earthquakes, all snapped together by unskilled labour. We basically spent about 10 years improving the material and the layout and the configuration and building a, a, a full building system where it's not just the walls, it's the joists, it's the decking, it's the roof, it's the headers over the windows and the doors, right? It's the whole building system. And we hear from Dave Stitt, a veteran construction manager who thinks we should stop telling people what to do and coach them instead. Well, I've been in the industry for 40 years. What, what have I noticed? Well, what I've noticed is the default conversation is command and control. But first, in December, CIOB published results from a survey that showed an overwhelmingly negative public perception of new build houses. It asked 2,000 UK adults what they thought, and 55% of them believed that old houses are better than new ones. CM Deputy Editor Christina Lago spoke to the report's author, the CIOB's David Parry, to find out what this means. Hear that? That's the sound of the set of keys to your brand new home. It wasn't cheap, and it wasn't a smooth journey, so you obviously expect things to be almost perfect. However, not everyone has a very positive image of new housing. In fact, over half percent of the adult population in the UK think that older homes are better quality than new builds. Not only that, 32% describe new housing as poor quality. These are just a couple of findings from a new report by the Chartered Institute of Building that focuses on the quality or perceived lack of quality, of new-built housing. Joining us today in 21TC is David Parry, Senior Parliamentary and Public Affairs Officer at the CIOB and the report's author. Hi, David, and Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us to dip into the report. Happy New Year, TT. Can you start by explaining the factors that fit into people's perceptions of new-built housing being of lower quality than older homes? Is there any factual basis for it? So I, I would say that the upshot of this report, and this is underpinned by the survey of, of 2,000 UK adults that we conducted as part of it, is that there's an overwhelmingly negative perception of the quality of new build houses. But this doesn't necessarily match up to the reality, as you know, many in the construction sector will know they're broadly more energy efficient, they're you know, more sustainable, and they're built to much more stringent regulations. And also consumers have much more access to protections through the New Homes Quality Board and New Homes Ombudsman that have been set up to regulate new build housing and ensure that what is being produced represents value for money. So I think the negative perceptions are, are twofold, really. I think firstly, you know, purchasing a new home is likely to be the most significant financial decision that somebody's going to make. So it's fair that if, you know, perception doesn't necessarily match up to reality, that people are going to be disappointed. I think secondly, and there's a lot of blame that needs to be shouldered on the house building sector here in that, you know, construction is, is one of the last hand-built industries. And the reality is that inconsistencies have and do creep in. So I think on the 
media coverage point, uh, I think it's a slightly separate issue and it's one that relates to the consumer journey. And if you're unlucky enough to have a bad experience with the quality of the new build home that you've bought, that's, you know, that's the be all end all to you, given that the investment that you've made, this makes for a very easy story and for one that's likely to gain a lot of attention because it's very personal and, you know, and that's rightly so. You know, we see maybe 50 to 100 stories like this uh, compared to the hundreds of thousands of homes that are being bought and sold in a year. So really, it only represents a fairly small proportion of the consumer journeys. But at the same time, it's not to say that these aren't factually accurate. And, and it's very clear that when we put this report together and we interviewed a snagging company based in Swansea, and they gave a pretty damning account of the quality of new build homes, essentially saying that they're detecting significant issues in almost every property that they survey throughout the UK. And this is backed up by survey data from the National New Home Customer Service from the National House Building Council and Home Builders Federation, which has stated that 95% of respondents reported problems with their new built home to their builder since moving in. So the answer is that it's, it's totally fair for people to have this negative perception. However, people are now more satisfied than ever with their new builds. And, you know, there's only a limited number of older properties available. So if people find themselves in a position where they're considering a new build, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're buying a home that is poor quality, but it does mean that they should, you know, do the research and, and find out what they're getting into. Which survey findings did you find most shocking? Uh, so I, I would say the one that I found most shocking is, is when they when we asked consumers what their biggest concern was about buying a new build house, over half of people chose poor workmanship. And that's a, a higher percentage than those that chose delays in completion or construction, hidden costs throughout purchasing, a lack of infrastructure, or you know the impact of development on green spaces. I think this shows that there's a high level of uh, attention and cognizance and interest about the quality of developments in, in some instances, more so than the, the cost of the home. Can you tell us about the new regulatory frameworks and legal protections in place that consumers can turn to when things go wrong? So just to, to go back to the establishment of the frameworks, essentially the, the two new organizations that you have the New Homes Quality Board and New Homes Ombudsman, the Quality Board looks to enshrine quality, as it says, in house building and has designed a quality code for registered house builders to sign up to, which defines what quality looks like during the sale, occupation, and post-sale experiences. The second, the New Homes Ombudsman, is the independent body that's set up to judge disputes between consumers and their house builders over issues relating to quality in sale, occupation, and post-sale. If a house builder is not registered with the Ombudsman, they can still contact them and ask for advice, and the Ombudsman will, will listen to their case, and they'll, and they'll try and provide strategic advice where possible and what they can do. At the moment, given that the Ombudsman has only been set up for the past couple of years, there's a fairly limited number of cases that are applicable, but it's always worth consumers contacting them to find out. And if they want to know if their house builder is registered, they can go on the New Homes Quality Board website where there's a full list of all registered house builders. 41% of people surveyed for the report said that new build homes lack character. Do you think there is an element of nostalgia for the Victorian or Edwardian terraced housing? which might be argued looked more beautiful, even if those buildings were colder and far less efficient than contemporary new builds. I certainly think a large aspect of it is down to its looks. I think there's nobody that could probably argue that new build homes are more beautiful than some of the older Victorian houses that are still existing at the moment. Um, but I do think there is a, there's a large element of nostalgia that, that plays in here. I also think there's a bias towards older properties as people feel that they've been lived in. And that means that there'll be less issues, but I don't think that's necessarily always going to be the case. You know, while some 
previous owners may have spent a lot of time and money making sure that their older properties are installed with the latest heating systems and technologies, or they're upkept with new insulation and you know new aspects where necessary. You know, this isn't always going to be the case, and, and many people purchasing older homes are going to need to make significant financial investments to bring them up to standard. I also think you know there's a lot of use there'll be a lot of use and weathering in systems like boilers and heating systems that will probably need replacing sooner than those in new build homes and i also think it's worth considering that if you're purchasing an older home there's you know very little recourse available to you if something goes wrong after the purchase whereas you know with the new build you've got a warranty that will cover you for you know up to two years after purchase if anything does go wrong and these new organizations set up to help you if a house builder is, is unwilling to fix an issue Moving forward, what are the next steps for government and the industry to ensure quality new builds and buyers' protection? So the full report contains a, a number of recommendations. Of the one that we feel is, you know, would would make a real change to the way that the industry works, and the perception about you know about the quality of new build homes is the government triggering a review of the new homes quality board and ombudsman to make the systems mandatory. Currently, if all applications are processed, and it's a voluntary system, it's worth pointing that out, they'll have an 80% market share of all house builders in England. That's great, but it leaves 20% of the market not covered and a significant number of consumers without proper recourse to hold their developers to account should something fail. And this is a fundamental failure in quality, and I think that more needs to be done to understand if it's possible to make it mandatory. I think it's also worth noting that on the points about snagging and on some of the kind of top tips that CIOB would recommend, we've created a short consumer advice guide that sits alongside the main report. Again, it's all accessed at CIOB.org.uk forward slash new builds. We'd recommend that people check that out. That's all from me. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Christina and David. Next month, we'll be talking more about the quality of new homes. But now to Florida. They uh, get basically like an aquarium almost, and they, they put a piece of Renko in the middle, and they have one queen on one side and like 99 males on the other. And they see what happens, how long you know it takes to, to get through. And after a month or exactly, I forgot the exact time, they, they let it sit. All the termites were dead. That's Patrick Murphy, the executive vice president of Coastal Construction, a family-owned contractor in Florida that his dad, Thomas Murphy Jr., set up in 1988. He's done a spell in politics. In 2013, he became the youngest member of Congress at the age of 29, serving two terms in the House of Representatives. And he does business development for Renko USA, the company spun off from Coastal Construction to develop their proprietary building system. Renko stands for Renewable Composites. He's talking about termites because that was just one of the hundreds of tests the system had to undergo to be certified in the U.S. for buildings up to five stories. It is now, and in November they finished their first development, four three-story apartment buildings in the town of Palm Springs, Florida. Just 11 unskilled workers erected each building in just eight weeks on average, equipped only with a mallet and a glue gun. The glue forms a chemical bond between the blocks, creating a super-strong monolithic structure. The idea came from a Turkish businessman, Engin Yesil, who spotted the material being used in Turkey for manhole covers. He set up a factory in Turkey and approached coastal construction in 2010 with a view to rolling the system out in the United States. Patrick and his dad flew to Turkey and saw what they were doing, and they were hooked. We basically spent about 10 years improving 
in doing R&D, the material and the layout and the configuration of it, and building a, a, a full building system where it's not just the walls, it's the joists, it's the decking, it's the roof, it's the headers over the windows and the doors, right? It's the whole building system. And it took about nine years to get the necessary approvals to build in the United States. We were naive, Rod, thinking that, you know, we're in construction and, you know, we know some folks and we're going to get this done. And, and that wasn't the case. It was a long, arduous process uh, to get it. We've, I think, done over 440 uh, tests in these, these, these certified labs, uh, everything from the fire to the wind to the seismic to the off-gassing, termites and mold, right? I mean, you name it, uh, we, we've done the test and to, to very high standards. So... Uh, anyway, we are now fully approved uh, with the International Code Council, uh, can build basically in you know 98% of the United States and great deal of, of the world uh, with the certifications we have and approved for five stories and less at this point. The idea sounds simple. Renco takes the plans for a building and manufactures the blocks in various shapes to make it. The blocks are color-coded, so workers can easily see what goes where. Simple as it sounds, the four-building complex finished in November provided a steep learning curve. In that first building, it was comprised of, I forgot exactly, but around 45 unique pieces. By the time we got to the fourth building, we were down to 22 unique pieces. We cut it almost in half, the amount of pieces. So something silly like the headers over, over the, the, the doors and all. It was, I think it was 13 pieces in the first building. We got it down to three pieces on the final building. So we've continued to make improvements, which result in, in speed. The blocks for that complex came from the Turkish factory. But now they're setting up their first factory on U.S. soil in Florida, helped by $18 million raised from investors in their first funding round in October. Patrick said making the blocks was pretty straightforward. It's comprised of basically recycled glass fibers, recycled plastic, calcite like the limestone dust, and then a resin, which is what, what holds it all together. And all that gets mixed together in a sort of little batch plant. And, and then it gets fed into the machines, injected into the machines. We have a mold. It presses it. It gets heated up. Boom, out comes the block. Robot arm grabs it and stacks it up. And so we have several of these machines. And they're, they're big. They're 40 feet long or so. Very heavy, big piece of equipment. And those machines roughly, you know, take about six months to, to make and get those delivered. So, you know, look, if someone had a warehouse or something, we, we could have a, a new facility up and running, you know, under a year, I, I'd say, you know, have to get the power right and, you know, all that stuff. But the machines get, get brought in, get the, the batch and get the raw materials and you're off and running. So the invention itself uh, has a lot of IP in it, but the actual manufacturing of it and the construction of it are, are quite simple, actually. The system has good eco-credentials. Patrick said a Renko block is around four times lighter than a similarly sized concrete block, and making it produces a tiny fraction of the emissions concrete does. The system is rated to withstand wind speeds of up to 250 miles an hour, a big advantage in hurricane-prone Florida. To put that into perspective, the highest wind speed ever recorded on Earth was 253 miles an hour at Barrow Island off the west coast of Australia in 1996. And it's impervious to water. You know, people think hurricane, they think wind right off the bat, but something that's really important is, is the impact of water, right? A lot of the damage actually comes from the water. Our material is not impacted by water at all. In fact, one of the tests we had to do, we had to submerge the material for quite a great, you know, great deal of time pull it out and see if there was any degradation of the material and test it again. 
and zero impact on it. You could put this in salt water for a year, pull it out, and there'd be no degradation of it. Once built, a Renko USA building will also outlive us. And our children. And our grandchildren. And our great-grandchildren. So yeah, wood gets about a 25-year lifespan, concrete about 40 years. And our first uh, building uh, that, that I mentioned earlier, uh, they gave us upwards of 250-year lifespan. Uh, that's our first one. We actually think it's it's quite longer than that. We haven't found anything to hurt the material. Termites don't eat it. As I said, water doesn't impact it. Wind doesn't. So, you know, we, we don't we think it's much longer than that, but we'll take 250 years as a starting place. <laughs> Despite all these selling points, Renko USA is proceeding cautiously. It sees itself as a building product manufacturer and leaves claims about reinventing construction to others. That would include Katera, the U.S. tech-driven modular startup that tried to revolutionize the sector before going bust in 2021, burning through more than $2 billion raised by Japan's SoftBank in the process. I think what they started with and what they ended up doing and, and why they failed was, was quite a journey. And I have no doubt that we can and should improve, modify, reform the way we build today. That thesis, right, still holds true that there are better ways to build the mousetrap. <laughs> and many studies have shown this that over the last 50 or more years, construction has remained stagnant, right? There's been a 0% increase in productivity in our industry compared to every other industry, which is 2x, 3x, et cetera. So th there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, it's a whole probably another topic. But specifically with Katera, when they started, I think there was a lot of maybe similarities. What we're doing is, is improving the way you build. And they were going to more of a modular you know, standpoint, as you alluded to, where we are more versatile and can build anything you want. If you want to, you know, I don't know, a round house, we could come up with the blocks to fit that. <laughs> we can fit into any you know, sort of design that an architect comes up with, uh, which is one key difference between us and Gatera. They had their paneled system. So you got model A, B, or C basically, right? And, and that was that. Didn't leave for a lot of design improvement or, or um, you know, creativity. They also tried to integrate the entire process from buying the dirt, getting it approved, designing the building, designing all the MEPs, owning all the trades, right? The the, the windows themselves, they were making the flooring itself, the, the plumbing, electric, installing it all, shipping it all, assembling it all, right? Just the whole an entire industry, they were trying to consolidate into one company. Maybe that happens in decades down the road. But that's a very long journey, and they were trying to do it in a few years. So what we're trying to do is really just keep our blinders on and be the structural building system for what anybody really wants to build. You know, of course, within our constraints, five stories and less. And you send us the plans, we'll send you the block, you assemble it, and you could put brick on the outside, you could put stucco, you could put marble on it. It could be affordable housing, or it could be a four seasons, five star, you know, hotel. That's up to the end user. Let them do that. And then let your plumbers and your electricians and everyone else, just the normal course of business, come in and do their work, not try to vertically integrate all of that. So, again, piece by piece, you know, maybe you start to, to, to chomp that off, but uh, that's not our intent right now. Thanks, Patrick. I think this shows just how much work it takes to get to simplicity. I wish you and the team lots of luck with the system. Now, Dave Stitt, FCIOB, used to be hard as nails. He came into the industry as a teenager and rose up through the ranks at Taylor Woodrow, Burse and Waits, thinking he had to be the toughest, 
meanest and bossiest person on site. Then he reformatted his style after he found himself leading culture change programs at big national contractors. Now he coaches construction leadership teams on team building and people skills, and he spoke to CM community editor Nikki Roger about coaching. Full disclosure, I've known Dave for years and helped him edit his book, Coach for Results. The number of people who have said to me, out of sheer exasperation, Dave, why do I have to do all the thinking around here? Well, the reason why you have to do all the thinking around here is you're telling people what to do and how to do it. Dave Stitt spent 40 plus years in the industry as a self-confessed hard-as-nails manager before he had a Damascene conversion to coaching. He then spent the next 20 years working as a coach with leadership teams so they enable their people to make things better. So, Dave, tell me, what even is coaching? Does construction need to adopt it? And crucially, how do we apply it to running a construction project? In my experience, Nikki, the construction industry doesn't know what coaching is. It's asking people questions, listening, and enabling them to work it out for themselves. What coaching is not is telling, suggesting, nudging people, pushing them in a certain direction. It's allowing them to think for themselves by adopting a coaching style rather than a command and control style. If you want to run the project collaboratively, then you need to adopt a coaching style. If you want people to conform to what you tell them, then you've got to adopt a directive style. When I had a proper job, I was a command and control merchant. I just used to tell everybody what to do and how to do it. And the only way to get this job built is the Dave Stitt way. And I didn't realize until I got out of that how stressful that was for me. The people that were reporting into me, they were disempowered. If I'm your boss, Nikki, and I tell you what to do, and even worse, how to do it, you can't help it. You switch off, you stop thinking, and you wait for me to tell you what to do next. The number of people who have said to me, out of sheer exasperation, Dave, why do I have to do all the thinking around here? Well, the reason why you have to do all the thinking around here is you're telling people what to do and how to do it. And they're not thinking for themselves. They're waiting for you to tell them what to do next. So to extrapolate that across the industry, and you kind of get, to a large extent, what we've got. Mm, Okay, so that's interesting. But is there any evidence to back this up or any any research to support it? Or is it just based on your observations? Gallup, the analytic giants, have been surveying workplace engagement for the last 30 years across the world, not just in the construction industry, all industries. And, And they say the majority of people aren't engaged. You know, they're just turning up. You know, Harvard have done lots of research into how to get the best out of people. And and they say that people want to be coached and that people want to coach others. Are we going to continue telling people and having to do all the thinking ourselves? Or are we going to get a bit smarter and start easing back, asking people questions, listening to them and enabling them to think and to work it out for themselves? In your book, Dave, you're really clear that coaching doesn't apply to instances of unsafe or illegal actions. And that makes perfect sense. If somebody's working in an unsupported ditch, you don't stop and ask them what they think about it. You you order them out. But what about other crunch issues like cost, quality and programme? Won't we end up with chaos if everyone is left on their own? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to dodge the question. I, I'm going to say, well, how is it going then, Nikki? All of this regulation, all of this compliance, all of this telling, all of this commanding and controlling. How is it going? For the industry 
you know, we've all heard the stories, uh, you know, Scottish schools. And is, is the latest addition of more regulation and more compliance, is that going to do the trick? My answer is probably not. If, if an individual can turn up and uh, in, a, in a different way and start asking questions and start listening to their colleagues and, and helping them work it out for themselves, and if we do that at scale and over time, then that's going to change the industry from the ground up. Okay, so that ties in with your mission to change the culture of the industry. Tell us, how has that gone? Working on the, on the principle that if I can get the people right at the top working really well together, giving joined up, consistent leadership messages on their, in their organisation or their project, you know, that's, that's going to change you know, the outcome of the project. And indeed it has. But then about five or six or seven years ago, I looked at myself and said, right, how we're doing in terms of changing the industry top down? And I thought, well, not very good. I then started to think, right, how can we go about this differently? I've been in the industry for 40 years. What, what have I noticed? Well, what I've noticed is the default conversation is command and control, where people tell people what to do and sometimes hmm. how to do it, that there's a different and better way a way to change the, the nature of the conversation. And so instead of commanding and controlling, controlling people and looking for uh, non-compliance, expecting compliance, instead of that, change the conversation. Change the conversation to a more of a coaching style conversation where people ask questions, where people listen, and where people enable others to work it out for themselves. So I created a, an online course called Coach for Results, which is intended to train thousands of young construction professionals into using more of a coaching style of conversation, a coaching style of management, with a view to doing that at scale and over time, so that these people show up differently in the workplace. And people around them will see that, and that will rub off on the people around them. And if we can do that at scale and over time, then that'll change the industry from the ground up. But whatever we're trying to do at the moment, isn't working and more and heaping on more and more regulation, more compliance, more commanding and more controlling is, is not working. We're, we're losing a lot of people every year. The young people don't want to come here. People adopt the ambient culture. So as they're coming in, they're going to behave how their bosses behave. The, the younger generation, the Zeds, just won't put up with it. They're no. leaving. You know, they want meaningful work. Mm. They want to make a contribution. They mm. want to think for themselves. They want purpose in their life. So they're right. not coming here. And when and if and when they do come here, they walk out the door within six months. This culture will not emerge naturally. We have to do something about it. I'm inviting people to step up and be different and to do different and to have different results. Okay, so you've made a really good case for coaching there, Dave. If there's a leader listening who thinks, God, you know what, I really want to bring a coaching style to the way that I manage, where should they start? There are some very easy first steps. They could read my book, Coach for Results, which is available on Amazon. They could go on the course. You could go to Henley and learn how to be a coach. There's loads on YouTube. Read up to what coaching is and how can you how can I incorporate that into my management style there's there's lots of things to do but if if you have a a tendency or a habit of automatically responding by telling people what to do then my first suggestion would be just to pause catch yourself and, and ask that person what they think first occasionally you know you will have to tell somebody what to do and how to do it but it's a matter of balance if that is your only style of getting things done where you are instructing people 
telling them what to do and how to do it, then you will become a, you are a policeman required to go and check up on people all the time. But you can you can add a few more tools into your bag. And and, and the challenge for leadership is knowing which tool to use in which circumstance. Can you run a project by coaching? I think you predominantly can, and you'll do it better when the leadership team is really working to create an environment where everybody can come and do their best work. Magic happens. Thanks, Dave, and thanks, Nikki. That's all we have time for this month. We hope you found it interesting. If you like the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. You can email us on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks for listening and have a great January.